chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over, over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, uh, John, for reading. I want to pass you a scripture for us this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray as we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it freely in this land and have it explained to us. Our Lord and our God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to understand this word and put it into practice. Father, I commit myself to you. Pray that you forgive me for my sins and use me as an instrument in your hands this morning to serve you and your precious people gathered in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, once again, good morning and so good to be here together to worship our wonderful and gracious God. And it is our prayer, as I mentioned at the commencement of our service, that the Holy Spirit will do his work amongst us in a most powerful and mighty way that the Spirit of God himself can do that. Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, our message under, under the title, Living in the Already and the Not Yet. And I was looking at this passage and kind of trying to work out a theme, work out a title, and I think this title, I hope, is quite appropriate to the passage that we have this morning. Living in the already and the not yet. I'll explain why I came to this title in a moment. You see, Peter gives four practical ways that we are to live in Christian community as to the end, as the end of all things are near. We are to think rightly and, clear, and to be clear-minded so that we can pray. We are to be earnest in love for one another, as love covers a multitude of sins. We are to be graciously hospitable to one another, and we are to serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. And all of these things we do for his glory. At the end, in verse 11, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, friends, living in the already and the not yet. Let me explain that. Today, we are living in the last days. 
We know that Christ came into this world. We know that he died on the cross for our sins. We know that he was raised from the dead. We know that he's ascended into heaven. And we know that Jesus, the Bible tells us, will come one day. And as we live in the already, we also look forward to the not yet, the consummation of this world one day. And I'll explain that as we go along. And as we live in this world, we face so many challenges. For example, this past week, if you watch the news, I'm sure you would agree with me that the first few items on our daily news bulletins are not very pleasant to hear. Uh, we hear of murders, uh, of, of children being killed. I mean, how could you explain that? Of stabbings. We hear of uh, wars going on in the world, the ongoing conflict in Syria. The battles in other parts of the world. We see so much suffering. We see so much hurt. We see relationships estranged and brokenness around us. And yet, people tell us that we live in a modern world, don't they? This is the modern world, 2013. We have progressed so well that we are doing so well as a society. Really? Are we? Think about that. Well, this morning we're going to look at just two verses in our text today, which is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says this, friends, the end of all things is near. Be alert and pray. We noted last week that we may suffer ridicule for being Christians. We may suffer rejection for following Christ. Our friends might despise you. Your family members might reject you. Your peers may reject you for taking a stance for Jesus. And as we live in such a context, we are to live reminding ourselves that all things are at its end, as it were. However, if we are confident that Jesus is coming again, we know that the rewards he will bring at his return are worth all the suffering we face in the meantime. And in our text this morning, Peter makes a bold claim about the future when he says all things are near. It is interesting to note that in the original, the word order of the sentence places all things at the beginning of the sentence. That if you look in your Bibles, it, it kind of places it in the, at the beginning. And this therefore gives us the comprehensive nature of the end that Peter speaks of. He says, then all things are at an end. And the word end is the word translated as a goal. It could be translated as an aim, as a purpose. So we can translate these words, the goal of all things is at hand. It is near. It is nearby. In fact, Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 13 and verse 12, our first reading. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. James wrote this in James chapter 5. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And so, in the light of this, we may ask as to where in the world 
Where is this world heading towards? What is happening in this world? Is there a final purpose? Is there a goal? Is there an end in sight? Or are we just kind of cruising along, not knowing where this world is going? Is there a purpose? You see, the atheist and everyone who mocks at Jesus and ridicule the gospel, they will say this world as it just continues on. There is no hope for the future. But the Christian worldview is different. The Christian worldview involves all things because all things are under God's control. All things are under God's redemptive plan and purposes. We don't just live aimlessly in this world, do we? God's world, God's world, there is a goal in purpose. There is a goal at the end. There is a purpose. There is a redemptive plan and purpose that has been played out in this world. And so today we hear words, a new, new phrase that has perhaps been coined by some who call themselves, we are progressive Christians. Wow, you are progressive? Yeah? Tell me about this. Well, I think by this they mean essentially this. Uh, we can't take God's word seriously, all parts of the scripture. We don't kind of accept it. It is not totally relevant for 2013 in the modern world. We are progressive Christians. So we think, like our evening services, we have fantastic series on ethical issues. So we think about uh, marriage, for example. We are progressive society, progressive nation, progressive world. So we don't need to think about the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. We are progressive Christians. Uh, we don't worry about issues of euthanasia, abortion, uh, living together, so forth. They are not relevant for us because... We are progressive Christians. Now, why do I say this, friends? You see, for example, last week on Monday night, did some of you watch Q&A? Right? Did you watch Q&A last? Well, perhaps it's, it's online on ABC, right? Uh, I watched the whole program. We watched the program as a family. <laughs> Absolutely appalled. You have a bishop from the U.S., from New, New Hampshire there, uh, Jeannie Robinson, absolutely left-field liberal, and you have Fred Nile. <laughs> It's conservative and biblical. And two guys coming from two different views. And I sat there and we sat there as a family looking at each other and said, how is it possible? Once a bishop who should understand the scriptures and uphold it, once a minister who knows the scriptures and uphold it, how come both are coming from two different views? And the panel is sitting there and looking at each other. And we are looking at each other. And the world and Australia is looking at each other and thinking, man, these guys don't even understand the scriptures. One is saying they are progressive Christians. You have a look at the program itself. The other is saying, well, we need the scriptures and God's word. <laughs> right? This is the kind of world that we live in. So they have no understanding of this, but God has a plan and a purpose for his world. The Bible tells us that God has a plan for this world because he made it. And we are already living in the last days. We are living in the already and the not yet. We are living in between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and his return. And according to the Bible, the future of this planet is not annihilation. Rather, it is restoration and renovation. We look forward to new heavens and a new earth. And this is one of the most comforting and most profound, most amazing truths in God's word. We are not living aimlessly in this world. I want to encourage you this morning 
on the basis of God's word, if you're living an aimless life, well, I want to pray by God's grace, you will live a purposeful life for him, right? That our lives will count for him. I mean, this morning, it was pouring. I went for a walk this morning. I had to run because it came down heavy, right? And in my running, I'm thinking, Lord, this is so good. It is so fresh. It's waking me up. It's a new day. I know I came home soaked. I said to Rose, feel my head. There's nothing much for her to feel anyway. <laughs> I said, feel it. It's all wet. Feel sorry for me. Of course not. <laughs> not really, not really. But I'm just saying, you know, God gives us a meaning and a purpose. And I was praying this morning for strength to preach God's word to you because I love you as God's people. A great privilege and honor to serve you for John and myself as we serve on the team here. God has a purpose, a meaning in our lives. This world is not just floating along aimlessly. He's put us, He's put you on this planet for a purpose, for His glory, to serve Him. You see, we are not living aimlessly in this world. God's work of redemption is cosmic. God will redeem the world and everything in it. And this will happen when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. You see, many have had a fascination with trying to figure out the exact sequence of events that surrounds the return of Jesus. Some have even predicted an exact date for the return of Jesus. Others have offered a time frame within which Jesus will return. And every generation of Christians since the the first coming of Jesus has had people who have tried to determine the exact timing of his return. Now, while the Bible does have much to say about eschatology, that is, the doctrine of last things, such teaching was never given so that we might be able to work out the exact timing of the second coming. For Peter's original readers, and no less for us, the return of Christ is imminent. This might seem strange to us, especially since we live so long after Peter did. Yet we must remember that our relation to time is not the same as the Lord's. All we can say is, that the return of Jesus is imminent. Peter is reminding them, and also us, that we are to live in anticipation of the nearness of the return of Jesus. Do you? You see, and while we wait the return of Jesus, this is not a passive waiting. We don't put our feet up on some hammock somewhere and sit down and kind of rock the, the hammock and say, ah, oh, well, I don't need to do anything else. Jesus is coming soon, so maybe. No, it's not some kind of passive waiting. We are confidently to await his return. And while we await his return, Peter calls us to do practical things in response to God's grace in our lives and in response to the fact that we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus one day. See, as today's passage shows us, Peter emphasizes the coming of Jesus in order to motivate us toward the practical godly living in this world. Happiness is godliness and godliness is pleasing God. And this includes how we live our lives today. And this waiting involves renunciating all of these things and holding on to Christ in faith, the pursuit of godliness. And so Peter says, therefore be alert 
and of sober mind, so that you may pray. In verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Let me explain that for a moment, right? Be self-controlled. That is, live a disciplined life. Be self-controlled of your thoughts and the way we live. Now, this is ongoing, isn't it? I, I, I don't have it made up here, right? I'm not saying I got it all made up and my mind's completely self-controlled. There are times that I, most times the mind's going all over the place. <laughs> right? It doesn't take much, does it? To get our minds to wander all over the, right now perhaps you're sitting here, you're looking at me thinking, man, when is the guy going to finish his sermon? No, don't do that. Don't. Don't yawn. <laughs> no, it's okay. You're free to yawn. <laughs> self-control. That is, live a disciplined life. Be self-control of your thoughts and the way you live. And Peter says, have sound judgment. The, the, the original word here means to be in one's right mind. Be clear-minded. Be sober-minded. This also has a reference to guarding your mind. And this right thinking, self-controlled and clear-mindedness are, are, are to result in prayer. And that's what we see here. Peter focuses then, when you have this clear-mindedness, this sober-mindedness, it ought to result in prayer because our minds are clear, our hearts have been touched by grace, and it leads us to pray. Do you actually spend time? I say do I'm, I'm, do we actually spend that time in prayer? We all know we need to pray, right? <laughs> we all know we need to do it. Everybody's busy, right? Do we actually really can I have that time you know, where I can pray? I know I need to pray more. I know that. But a, a clear mind, a controlled mind, helps me also in my prayer life because I'm able to bring these things. To God And remember Peter's readers were suffering. They were suffering at the time Peter wrote this letter for being Christians. And the temptation would have been for them to perhaps not be bothered about prayer as they were possibly discouraged. You know when you're discouraged at times and when things don't go well in your life, sometimes you feel like turning back, isn't it? <laughs> Think, ah, oh, I don't want to pray anymore. This thing is too much for me. But Peter is saying, keep on praying. <laughs> Right, praying. And as you look at this world, as you experience suffering for being a Christian, Peter says, be self-controlled, be clear-minded, and pray as you live with the reality, with expectant hearts to know that God, one, answers prayers, and two, that Christ will return one day, and all suffering will end. You see, things can change with one visit to a doctor. Just takes one visit to a doctor and things can change in our lives. You see, Peter says, keep on praying to this living Savior. What an encouragement. And then he says, a practical one, which is, this is what we will look at, one aspect of the practical aspect this morning and next week we'll look at the other two. So we'll at two aspects the next week, the other two. So verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, that is, there is nothing more important than our earnest love for one another. There may be other things equally important, but there are none more important. Why? Why does this unusual love matter so much? Because God is love. Anyone who does not love, God, love does not know God. 
because God is love. Yes, there is wrath in God. Yes, there is the justice of God. But friends, God is love. You see, this is what we need to understand. Right? We have to provoke him to wrath, but we do not have to provoke him to love because love for the undeserving flows from who God is. This is our starting point. We are to love others because it is the visible sign of our love for the invisible God. Above all, love each other deeply. That is, as Christians, we are to love each other with a deep love. Why would you say this? Surely is it not a given that we love one another? Right? Come on, it is a given, right? We love one another. We think it is a given. It is there. But I tell you what, friends, it is a challenge at times. Explain in a moment. I suspect because loving one another can be really tough. We all have different personalities, different temperaments, different mindsets, different thinking. We are different individuals, right? And we, God brings these people from all over the world, all cultures, puts us in one body and says, now love each other. <laughs> how is that possible? Now, how is it how is it going to be possible? Because it is God's Spirit that helps us to exercise that love. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us to exercise that love in our relationships. That God pours out His heart, His love into our hearts. And we have to make an effort to love one another. Love is a feeling and an emotion and an experience. But more than that, love is also action. It is doing things for others to show our love. For example, I, I love my wife Rose, um, but I need to demonstrate that love to her by doing things with her and for her. I need to go to the kitchen sink and do the dishes. I can't say to her, I love you, darling, and wow, that's great. Do the dishes, mop the floor, wash the car. Just a vacuum cleaner, do that. You're a great wife. I love you so much. Come on. Right? Husbands, we don't do that to our wives, would we? We need to show it. We tell our children we love them. Well, do we really do that? Or do we say to them, well, I love you guys. Give me a hug. Daddy loves you. I'll see you when you... Um, Get to VCE year 12 and you're graduating or the great valedictory dinner or something. I'll see you then. But I love you in the meantime. And not be interested in their lives. Does it make sense? Of course not. But love is action. God is, God's love is an, act, is an active love. He initiates with us. God is present and active. That's the whole purpose of Christ's coming. That is, God is with us and involved and participating in our lives in many ways. He has created us to have relationships for community and for love. We worship a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who has love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Peter writes, keep on loving one another earnestly. The word here is earnestly as opposed to moderately or sparingly. And this word earnestly suggests abundantly, intensely, eagerly, deeply. In fact, the word means at a full stretch extended. It involves the strain of a long reach. In ancient Greek literature, this word is used to describe a horse stretching out and running, straining, 
to reach the gold. Loving our brothers and sisters can be challenging. C.S. Lewis, the well-known author, distinguishes between need love and gift love. He says that need love is where I love you because you do something for me that is beneficial. I will love you if you can do something for me, right? That's the kind of society that we live in. I love you because, because I can get some, you can get something from me. Or I can get something from you. It is a contractual kind of love where, well, you make me feel good, so I love you. Or you do kind things for me, so I will love you. Or you meet a need that I perceive that I have, so I will love you. He says that Christ-like love is a gift love. He says this, I give affection to you with no demands or expectations in return. It is a covenantal and not a contractual love. It is predicated upon terms. It is just given freely and graciously and happily without ever expecting that you will give it back to me or make up for it. Or that this ever in, in, in any way be an equal giving of love. It is, he is saying, I will give it to you in spite of the fact that I may not get anything back. Do we love people like that? Or do we love them with the knowing that, oh, if I do this kind of thing, oh, he's going to return the love for me. He's going to show it some way. Is that the way we operate, friends? See, much of the infighting and conflicts in churches result from when we act according to our self-interest. My needs are not met, and that means I can't love you. It's a consumer mentality, isn't it? And I've got to watch my heart as well. I will give you pastoral care because I know then uh, you'll be happy in the church. <laughs> you see that? No, of course not. See, our hearts are, de- are deceptive about all things. And this is why Peter says to keep on loving one another earnestly. This love is not selfish but selfless. It is also practical. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, has written a commentary on, on uh, Peter says this, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. You see that? Where there is no love, there will be conflicts. And who is the happiest guy? Eh? Satan's happy there. He said, man, good, let's get these bunch of Christians to fight with each other and destroy each other and take the energy, suck the energy out of the church. Let's just create havoc in the place. And he's sitting there, he's delighted. And we are fighting with each other. I'm not saying it happens here, please don't be wrong. Right, in the church. In the meantime, the world is looking outside and saying, oh, those Christians, oh, Oh man, those guys can't get on with each other. They're fighting with each other all the time. I want even more a bar of the church. Can you see that? I don't want to be a, a, I don't want to get close to a Christian at all. See, this happens. See, James, writing in the book of James, says this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, James talks about the sin of showing favoritism. And he uses the example of the rich and poor. I think it's fair to say that as Christians, today we don't have the rich and poor distinction in this congregation, but I think it is fair to say that as Christians, we can show favoritism in what we can, what can be called social favoritism. I thought about this past week. You see, social favoritism can be hard to define. Social favoritism, favoritism can take place when you and I can get into cliques. Right? And cliques can form around year groups, can form around ages. Cliques can form around the cool people. What about the uncool people who are outside of the group? Are they part of it? Right? Around sporting groups, around theological groups, amongst ministers, they can have the boys club, as it were. Right? It's a dangerous thing as well. Around friends. And the sad thing about cliques is that they share the common feature of being exclusive. And some people are part of it and some are not. Cliques can become self-centered and self-sufficient. And in the process, those who are on the outer can feel socially isolated and even hurt. Have you ever felt that way? It happens. It happens in churches. I've read extensively about this topic this past week. It's quite amazing the amount of material that's around this thing. In other words, every clique breaks the clear biblical teaching not to show favoritism. Someone put it this way. You see, small groups, I'm not sure that picture is quite clear there, but you can see the divide anyway. Uh, Small groups often divide the church into cliques. The group form bonds and no people stand a chance of joining them. The more groups there are, the more segregated the church. New people see this right away feel like an outsider, which they are, and don't go back. And members can feel that way as well. You see, loving one another earnestly will ask the tough questions, questions like, do I include people within my circle? You see, when you're talking with people, let's just put this in practice, all right? So I say I've got three people standing here, I'm talking with them. How are we going, brother? And someone else is standing on the other side, and we are so close that the guy is standing there. I'm sorry, you can't come in. What should I be doing? I should be moving out and opening up the circle and say, "Come in, right?" See, see what happens. It can happen. It's happened. And I just pray. I just ask us to think about this. How is the attitude of my heart towards others? who are not part of my circle? Am I warm and welcoming towards others within, uh, within, within that fellowship of, of believers? Am I sensitive to others who are not part of the circle of people I hang out with? I read this on a blog. It hurts. Actually, it had another word. I can't repeat it. This is what the the blog said. It hurts when no one talks to you and they are sitting so close by. I have been there. When I go home from church feeling alone and sad because no one would speak to me, I have been using my walk home to talk to God about it. 
that helps me a little and reminds me that it's about God. Don't be that person. How sad would that be? To be in the midst of Christians in a church family and to have to go home feeling See, love covers a multitude of sins. So friends, I pray that God will always keep working in our hearts to be inclusive and not exclusive. To think about others as well, alright? Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Proverbs 9. In this world, we will suffer injustices. But as Proverbs 10, 12, 30, uh, 10, 12 says, Love covers over all wrong things. This is the image of covering in the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement, the blood from a sacrificed animal was taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the most holy item in the temple. And the blood of the sacrifice was poured over the throne of God to cover the sins of the people. But years later, God sent his Son, whose blood was shed on the cross, so that to those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus, we are covered by his righteousness. This morning, we're going to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Are you covered by the blood of Christ this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ who died for you, so that he has clothed you with his righteousness? He's taken your sin and given you a new garment. Isn't that amazing? And Peter says this. Now Peter applies this to speak of a special love that covers a multitude of sins, which is the love for each other. This kind of love is truthful. This kind of love will admonish. This love does not ignore sin. This love will protect the body of Christ. And that's why we take discipline seriously. If it is destroying the body of Christ, the church must act. Because love will not ignore sin. right? Because God did not. So this morning, friends, as we conclude, we live in the already and the not yet, between now and the return of Jesus. I pray today that we will be alert, that we will be sober-minded, that we will be prayerful, and above all, as Peter says, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And in conclusion, we do this because of the gospel. God's love for you. Do you know that love this morning? If you don't, then I pray today that you commit your life to Jesus and say, Lord, I have lived a life without you all this time. Two ways to live. I have been the center of my life. Now I want you to be the center of my life. Thank you for loving me. And come and celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Amen.